Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. And now that we have opened our hearts in prayer and praise, it is time for our speaker. Jess suffered much in her young life and has been healed, restored, and made whole in Jesus Christ. She now ministers to others in every facet of her life. Let us listen to the remarkable testimony of Jess Echeverry. How's everybody doing? Thank you so much for being here today. Looking out at all your faces, it fills me with joy that you're here because God has every single one of us here for a reason, including me. This testimony that I'm about to give is a testimony about forgiveness. That's what it truly is, about the Lord's mercy, his beautiful mercy for all of us. I had a really rough childhood. My parents divorced when I was super young, under a year old. I experienced a a broken household. My parents divorced, remarried a few times over. Unfortunately, even statistics show us that children that come from broken households it's a higher incidence of different traumas and woundedness occurring with them. And that is the situation in my case. At 10 years old, I was sent to the corner store um, to buy a pack of cigarettes for my mom. And because back in those days, you could do that with a note. Crazy. <laughs> Never get away with that nowadays. So I did. And what ended up happening is the clerk at the store, it was just him there and I, and he lured me into the back of the store and he molested me. I was 10. I remember not knowing what I was experiencing, feelings I'd never felt before, and just knowing that it wasn't right or good, really starting to begin to feel shame for the first time. As a little girl, I got on my bike, I rode home, I didn't even have words. I didn't even know how to say what had just happened to me. I actually felt like I had done something wrong. So because of that, I took the pain of that, of what I experienced, and I put it in a box, and I shoved it down inside of me, thinking I could just forget about it. About two years later, in middle school, I was staying after for a school event, which was very rare, but I did, and I was lured by an older man around, away from everybody at the school event. Nothing came out of my mouth. I was screaming so much on the inside. I was piercing my own ears, but nothing was coming out of my mouth. And I did what many rape victims do, and I started to disassociate because I couldn't get it to stop. I started looking at the cracks and the cement and the ceiling that I was looking at. I was 12 years old. I was just left there and Again, I didn't know what to say. And again, I was left feeling somehow I've done something wrong. Somehow I've brought this on myself. Coming from that type of household, felt like I had anybody to go to, to even begin to even try to say anything. 
So I did what I knew, which worked the last time, and I grabbed it and I put it in a box and I put the lid on tight and I shoved it down. And what that did is that turned me into what my parents then labeled me as as a rebellious teenager, as you can imagine. And so by 14, I'm running away from home, don't want to be there anymore, I'm angry at the world, I have this woundedness inside of me that has deformed who I even believe that I am. And I'm out on the streets, I'm in my friend's closets, I'm trying not to be home. I end up going to live with a family member. I'm 16 now, and I'm in high school. I do have a high school sweetheart, a boyfriend. And at 16, I got pregnant. My entire family at the time said, okay, well, you'll just have an abortion, and that will solve this problem. So in high school, on lunch break, I convinced one of my friends with a car to take me to the abortion clinic. And I went there three times. Each time, I got a little further in until the third time I was laying on the gurney in a robe. And each time I got there, I got flushed with heat and a sense of nausea, which sent me right out the door. So on the third time I get in the car, my friend's completely frustrated with me now because we keep trying this and it's not working. And she takes me to a pregnancy help center. I remember walking in there, it was, the, the lady was very sweet, very calming. She took me into a room and she showed me a video of girls holding babies and girls pregnant with babies and what the baby is inside. and Because the reality of that I'm not having an abortion now. So what does this mean? So now I see, that's the first time I realize, wait, this is my own person inside of me. And now I just, I want my baby, right? Now I wanna keep my baby and go. So my family was still stuck on abortion. The family uh, member that I was living with said that I couldn't stay there and be pregnant and then I had to make arrangements to leave. My boyfriend took the city bus to and from work and he befriended a woman on the bus and said, you know, hey, my girlfriend's about to be homeless because she's pregnant. She's like, oh, I know somebody that has a room for rent, um, 10 bucks a month, you can, you can have her live there. So we go to this room and it's in, this is all in Florida because that's where I'm originally from, and it's in this neighborhood called Tatertown. And Tatertown, is not good. Tatertown is what some refer to as the ghetto, the lower end, the other side of the tracks. And it was a crack and prostitution house. Yeah, I was surprised too. Uh, very surprised. I was petrified. But it was this room that had a lock on the door or the streets. And so I chose the room and I was there for months. I mean, the only way to describe it is this, I had a lot of boxes to pack living there and a lot of boxes to shove down inside of me. What I saw and what I experienced, I can promise you, is straight from hell. And there were children involved in that home. I called my mom crying in the middle of the night one night and I said, I can't, I can't, I cannot be here. I will go to the street. And she said, okay, I'm gonna come get you. She came and she got me. And she found me a maternity home for unwed mothers, a Christian home to finish out my pregnancy in. Now at the time, this maternity home was focused solely on adopting babies out. They didn't have any resources for girls who wanted to keep their babies. So that was kind of how that turned out, was I really didn't have a choice. If I didn't want to be on the street and I wanted to at least continue with this pregnancy and give birth to my son, I needed to stay there and I needed to make an adoption plan. So I did. 
It was a beautiful home. It was run like a family with house parents and about eight of us girls, Protestant Christians. My memories there are awesome. But I gave birth to my first child at 16. And they brought him into me to see for five minutes. And I remember holding him and just thinking, I don't ever want to let him go. And all I heard around me was, no, no, no. There was one picture taken of his father and me and my new son, Brandon, in the hospital bed. You can go to my social media, it's on there. But I left the hospital at 16 years old without my child that I wanted. So you can imagine the size of that box that I'm now shoving stuff into and putting the lid on. I went back to the maternity home and I fell into a very deep depression, as you can imagine. My ex-boyfriend, the father, who now we're broken up, also fell into a deep depression. His whole family was praying and said, we want our son back, basically. And so none of the papers went through the court yet, so we were able to say, okay, we want him back. So within two weeks of having given birth to him, now here he is in front of me, right? You think, oh, that's amazing, that's awesome. Where's Jess and the baby gonna go now? I, ha I still had nowhere to go. I couldn't stay at the maternity home. They have no resources for women with babies. My family was not interested at all in seeing him or being a part of our lives. And I had nowhere else to go. So the, his father's family said, we will take him. And so I spent the whole day at their house with him. It's my one day as his mom. That's what I call it. I was there from early in the morning until about 11.30 at night, until they threw me out, literally. And it was one of my most beautiful moments as a human being to be able to spend that time with him. But I had to go, so I went to the streets. This was my first night, homeless, officially. So I went to where I knew, which was Fort Lauderdale Beach, on the sand, and I didn't want to sleep on concrete, so I went there, I, you know, you do this in the sand and you make your little hole, and I thought that was comfortable, but I was scared. I was petrified. Is somebody gonna come up to me? Am I gonna get attacked? Am I gonna get raped again? Like all of these things I'm thinking about as I'm two weeks postpartum at 16. So I looked out to the water and I thought, you know what? In Florida, the sun rises in the east, out here it sets into the water. If I see that sunrise, then I'm gonna, I'll be okay. If I could just see that sunrise in the morning, when I see a little tip come off the top of that water, I'm gonna make it. I could totally do this. One eye open, sleeping, I started seeing the light come up out of the ocean. And it was another one of the most beautiful moments of my life, seeing the sunrise. And me having this feeling like, okay, I can do this. I'm surviving now. I am seriously in survival mode now, right? I have no shelter, I have no food, I have no family. Here I am. And what I ended up happening was, there are other people like that living on the streets. And they see a newbie come along and they bring you in as family. And you end up running the streets together. You got each other's back, although you can never trust anyone. 
because even those relationships are flawed and unhealthy. That time on the streets, we did a lot of bad things. We did evil things to survive. That is life on the streets. Before I got to the streets, I was wounded and I was traumatized, but the streets themselves, living on the streets is traumatizing because of what happens out there, especially with women. Women have a completely different homeless experience than men do. As a matter of fact, 79% of women who are homeless are there because of woundedness they suffered when they were a child. I know a lot of times people hear, oh, well, the homeless, they're mentally ill. I wasn't mentally ill. I was emotionally and mentally wounded, but I wasn't mentally ill. So we ran the streets. I watched as my friends participated in prostitution, selling ourselves so that we can have a meal and a hotel room. We would work the shelter system, Covenant House down there, all the shelters. We'd sell our blood and plasma. That was a good one. So we would do all those things just to survive. At 18, living this life and doing these things, I become pregnant again. And this time, I don't have a friend to take me to the pregnancy center. This time, because of the life I've been living, my heart has gone numb. And actually, the voice that I'm hearing in my head is, what kind of mother are you? You're going to bring this baby out here? What do you think is going to happen to that baby? And what I started hearing was, the best thing you can do for that baby is to have an abortion. Save it from this life. And I believed it. I was so numb. I was so living in sin and far away from God. God had no position in my life. I wasn't introduced to him in my home growing up. I have and still have an uncle who is a Protestant who loved Jesus. Every once in a while when I was around him, I would hear about Jesus. And even when people approach me on the streets, Jesus loves you. Yeah, where is he? What is he doing for me? I'm hungry. I'm experiencing hell out here. If this God exists, then I don't want anything to do with him. He, th that's sick. Because I would hear, oh, he's with you in everything. He's right by your side. Well, why isn't he acting? Why isn't he saving me from all of this? So I didn't want anything to do with God. Nothing. So at 18, I had an abortion. I did. And I can tell you that as a homeless, wounded person, woman on the street, that before I had that abortion, I wanted to live. Every ounce of my being wanted to live, wanted to breathe, wanted to survive. But after I had that abortion, I just wanted to die. I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to exist anymore. I didn't want to experience anything anymore because everything that I was experienced hurt. Everything just hurt so bad. Shortly after that, the closest person to me, my Nana, my dad's mother, who lived in a trailer and was broke, but always wanted me to come there and give me a cup of tea and try and solve my problems, which she could never do, passed away. And when she died, I felt like I had nobody. Literally nobody. At 19, I get in my super fast car. It was a Monte Carlo SS, if you're familiar with cars. Super fast. And in the middle of the night, I get in and I floor it. I'm not wearing my seatbelt. 
I've had enough. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to be a part of it. I hate this world. There's no God. If he does, I hate him. I just want to end this all. And I'm crying and I'm stressed and it's very stressful to try and commit suicide, by the way. Your heart's in turmoil because there's this thing in you that says, you really shouldn't be doing this, but you're blocking that. You're trying not to listen to it because you just want to get it done because you've had enough. It's literally a moment. It's what I tell people when I speak on suicide. It's literally a moment where you're making a decision. And I'm into the street, I'm either gonna slam into the pole, or this is Florida, and this is near the swamps. I'm gonna drive my car straight into the swamps at the end of this road. I'm done for. This is all gonna end soon. And then I hear her voice. The only voice that I trust. My Nana's voice. Don't do it. Stop. It's okay. Everything is going to be okay. God is so tricky because if it would have been anybody else's voice, I wouldn't have listened. But it was hers. She was speaking to me. And I did. I stopped and I cried and I thought, okay, I believe you. I'm not going to do this. Everything is going to be okay. I had no idea how or when or what. But at that moment, it stopped me. But it didn't last. Because that's what happens when you have these boxes packed up and shoved down inside of you. Things are moments, they're, they're momentarily, but they're not lasting. At 19, in a moment of, I've had enough yet again, I drank a half a bottle of whiskey. And at the friend of a friend who I was staying at, they had lots of medical conditions and just literally a line of pills, prescription pills in their kitchen. I thought, all right, now's the time. Here we go again. This time I'm gonna do it. And so I drank a half a bottle of whiskey, down three or four bottles of those pills. I have one flash before I wake up in the hospital. I'm laying on the living room carpet in this place that I'm staying. And the woman who was trusted with my care, God bless her, was over me, slapping me across the face, beating me, literally beating me, to wake me up. Don't you do this! Don't you do this to me! What am I gonna tell your mother? And then, I don't remember anything else. I wake up in the hospital, I'm alive. I am very happy about that right now. But I cannot begin to explain to you how unhappy I was back then. So unhappy, I was cursing everybody. How dare you? This was legit, like I did a good job this time to secure this end. I was saved, thanks be to God. But I was still in the same life. I was still in the same situation. I was still running the streets. Now I'm a little bit older, I'm over 18, I'm 19 now, and I'm doing more sophisticated street stuff. I'm using men for apartments and cars and resources. And I'm in abusive relationships. The only relationship with a man that I've really ever known because of the brokenness in my home and because of my life on the streets has been unhealthy and abusive. But then I get pregnant again. Hey, this is my third pregnancy. I'm 21, three babies by 21, from 16 to 21, all on the streets. But you know what? This one is mine. Come hell high water, nobody's taking this one from me. This one is coming home with Jessica. That's in my heart. 
That, I mean, I will scratch people's eyes, I'll do whatever I need to do. This one is coming home with me. So I got on welfare, because that's what you do. One of the people I was around, oh, now I can get food stamps and cash aid and WIC and all that other great stuff. And I was in a very abusive relationship. And at around five months old, he beat me down. There's just no other way to say it. And I was at the hospital and the nurse was pleading to me, please let me help you. Nope, he'll kill me. I don't trust the system to put him away doing that and he'll kill me. But what if he hurts your child? And that hit me. That stuck in me. Because here I have a child somebody else is raising that I have no control over his life. I killed my other child in an abortion. And now this one, I, there's a possibility of losing this one? No. Okay. So I accepted her help. And by the grace of God, there was a restraining order. He was put out of the apartment. The lease was put in my name. And there I was, free of that relationship, in that apartment. I gave birth to my third child, a girl, Vanessa, at 21 years old. I was so poor, I didn't have money for a car seat. The Hospital Women's Guild gave me one for free. I've always thanked them for that. I went home with her in a taxi. 21, dirt poor, got my baby in a taxi home. If somebody would have knocked on my door at that moment and said, hey Jess, how do you feel about your life? What? My life is awesome. I got a roof over my head. I got food in my refrigerator. I have my baby. I made my own little person. I am living the best life. But the truth is, is that I wasn't. My idea of the best life was limited because of my experiences. I had no idea the greatness that God had created me for. And so what I thought was the best life was all the way down here, as far as my existence is concerned. Very low standards and undignified. That was my life at that moment. I had no idea. Some people would say that because that's how I felt, that I was in the right place. Some people would say, yeah, that's her best life. If she thinks that's her best life, then that's where you should leave her. Thank God, thank God that I now, moving into the next stage of my life, met someone that believed more, because that's the key. So here I am, now I've got a job, I'm slowly building my life, I have a daughter, I have a little car now, I'm working, and then that's when I meet this man. And this man changes everything, everything for me. He comes from a completely different background, a fully intact family, raised in a household that believes and worships God and has healthy relationships. And even more than that, his family experienced travel and just really great things in their lives. And so when I met him, I was mystified. Who is this person? Where did this person come from? And why is he interested in me? Which by the way, he felt the same thing too. But look, that's the sense of humor that God has, right? I would have never picked him and he would have never picked me. That's the truth. But God wanted us together. And so, and obviously that's my husband and then Deacon Charlie. But in this relationship with him, and this is what happens. Well, very early in our relationship, he gets a job offer. So we're moving from Florida to California. So this location change is big, okay? Literally, 
leaving the other side of the to the other side of the country. And I was I, look. I was a street kid from Fort Lauderdale. The farthest I got was New York in a car that was illegal. When we were dating, he wanted to take me to Niagara Falls, and I'm literally in the car with him. We're crossing the border, and I'm having a panic attack. This is Canada, folks. And I'm having a panic attack in the car. Like, oh my god, this is a completely different country, and what if I get arrested, and who's gonna bail me out? And the, it's Niagara Falls! Calm down. Of course, that's been my husband's response to all of my anxieties in our relationships. Calm down, open your eyes. In this relationship, I learned the truth. Because his life was so different than mine, our lives were being held up together, and I saw the truth of what happened to me. Because what happened to me and the circles that I ran in, the people that I were around, were all the same. My best friend on the street, she was raped and molested too. We all have the same story. And if we're all trapped together, there's no breaking out. It's what we believe life is about. And so when I met him, it was like, and that's awesome. And it's amazing. And it's a beautiful feeling, especially when it first happens. But it reveals the truth. And I didn't know it was going to do that. And the truth was the truth, that I was wounded, that I was broken that I had things happen to me that should have never happened to me, and that I was in pain, and that I was hurting, and that I wasn't where God created me to be. And that hurts. I call it the old self versus the new self. I'm in the shower crying, going, here I am in this home. Now we have two more kids. We've had two kids together, and I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I'm doing carpool and soccer games. When I'm in my minivan pumping Snoop Dogg, thinking about my life on the streets, it was just crazy. And so that created a chaos inside of me. Who are you, Jessica? Are you this or are you that? And so I, I went on this search. I started therapy. I spent seven years in therapy. And that's when I started unpacking those boxes. The therapist helped me pull a box out and take the lid off and face it. And that was awesome. Man, I felt like my life had changed. After seven years of that, yes, I am healed. I have forgiven all those people, especially my rapist and my molester. I have forgiven them for me. I can move on. Yeah, to hell with you, but I can move on. Because I've got a good family, I've got a good husband, I've got a good life now. That's what I believed. And I did what the world told me, what therapy told me, because it was secular. The power is inside of you. You just have to figure out how to tap into it. So I was studying Eastern religions and doing meditation. I joined the self-realization temple in Pacific Palisades. And I was meditating at the lake there. It's a good life, Jess. But then, oh, that's not your life. Mm, you still hate those people and you want to kill them. Mm, you really think you're worth all this? It's constantly there. Where is this peace that was promised to me? So I'm meditating at the self-realization temple at the lake and I go up into the temple one day because I'd never been in there before. And when you walk in, it's shaped like a hexagon. And in the back, there's these tapestries of all the avatars that they worship. And to my surprise, right in the center of all of those tapestries was Jesus. What are you doing here? <laughs> I was. And not even a second after I had that thought, a heaviness came over me and pushed me down to my knees. My whole body filled it was more filled than I thought it could be filled. And it wasn't heavy, 
It wasn't bad. Like, I use the word heavy because I don't know how, there's not another word to describe it. Every ounce of my being, molecules I didn't even know that existed in me, were completely filled. I have goosebumps talking about it right now. And here he comes, and he pops out of the tapestry. Yep. Yes, he did. You can call me crazy. I've called myself crazy when it was happening, especially. Jesus Christ came out of that tapestry. And you know what he said to me? I'm glad you're here. I see you met my friends, but you're here for me. I'm the one you're looking for. Gone. And I did this, but just really more drastically. And I rushed home. And in my heart was, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. It's all him. It's who I need. It's who I want. It's what I want to live for. And then you know what came to me? My Catholic mother-in-law. She did. Every single time I was in a car with her and we drove by a Catholic church, I'm like, oh, it's his mother. God is good, he will reward you. Why are we doing that? Because Jesus is in there. That's what God put in me after he appeared to me. Jesus is in the Catholic church. Duh. Okay, my mother-in-law was right the whole time. I'll give in to that one. It's worth it. And so that's what I started doing. Because my husband would go to Mass on Sundays with our children while I went to the temple. And so I went home. And I was like, I'm going to Mass with you. Really? Yeah. But see, little did he know the pain in his side I would become. Because now I want to know. Now I'm paying attention. When we got married, we got married in the church. I didn't pay attention. We took flowers to the Mary statue. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm like, how long are we here? Okay, and now we go over here? Okay, great. It was me at my wedding. Now I'm walking in the Catholic church like, why is he wearing a green cape? Where's the cookie? Can I have the cookie? Why is that stained glass guy holding a head? And the amazing thing about that is that God loved my husband and his patience with me. God definitely gave him the virtue of patience. But my husband realized what this drew out was that he was a cultural Catholic. He always believed he was a Catholic. But that started to become questioned when I started asking him questions. And he didn't know the answers. And so my wanting to know more led him to seek the answers. And so here, he and I are on this journey now, where God is slowly now bringing me into his church and he's bringing my husband, reverting him back into the faith. It's beautiful, actually. Very, very beautiful. So here's the thing, I became Catholic in 2008. I did, it took a couple years after that experience at the temple. I was stubborn, you know. I came into the church not believing in what the church taught, not understanding the sacraments. I wanted the cookie, I'm not gonna lie, but I didn't understand anything about it and I kinda didn't wanna know. I realized my husband was Catholic, all of our kids were Catholic, I was the only one in the house who wasn't. So that was kind of the initiative for me to get in. And that I knew Jesus was in there, and so I had to be in there too. And that was the motivation. The sacraments, especially the sacrament of confession, I was against. I had two big issues when I became a Catholic. And that's, I ain't telling nobody what I've done wrong, because it's none of their business. Trust me, trust me. Y'all worship Mary way too much. So this is a little unhealthy for me. That's what I thought. That's honestly what I thought. What does God do with that? 
Well, I'll tell you what he does with it. In order to become a Catholic, you have to have your first confession. So I go into the little box, the stuffy little box. My sponsor, she taught me exactly what to do. When I hear this, I'm gonna do this, and I have my process down. I know I'm gonna ace this. And then the little slide opens, and I can't see anything. And God put the oldest living priest in the archdiocese in that box. I kid you not. Really, God? Really? I got so mad, I'm not gonna lie. I got so furious. I was sitting in that hot, sweaty box like, I knew it. This is a farce. This is, what is this? But he wasn't stopping. So I was like, okay, he got quiet. Here go my sins. God bless you, Father. And I said him. And then there was about five minutes of me feeling the whole time like, I knew it. I knew it. Mother-in-law's not right on this one. And then I saw his hand, the shadow of his hand go up. And I remember my sponsor saying that when this hand goes up through the sign of the cross, your sins are about to be forgiven. Jesus is about to absolve you and everything will be gone. You'll be clean, white as snow. I saw that. I was like, okay, I know this part. So I go, put my hand up, and as I do the sign of the cross, everything that that old priest said was in my heart. I knew every word that he had just spoken. I knew everything that Jesus wanted me to feel and know at that moment, and most of it was just his unending mercy. I got flooded with the truth of God's divine mercy. And man, did it feel good. And I was dumbfounded. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Father. And I am going to do that. And opening the door, line of people. Hey, hey, don't get out of line. You have got to go in there. Seriously. Sold. From that point on. And I share that with you because there was a lot of healing that needed to be done even outside of therapy. As a Catholic, I learned, and for the first time I'd ever heard, the dignity of the human person. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. If we were to go out to the streets right now, and I asked 150 people out there, have you ever heard this? I don't think they would be raising their hands. When I became a Catholic, that was the first time I'd ever heard those words. The dignity of the human person. What does that mean? I learned what that meant for the first time. I am created in the image of God. Just take a second and think about that. I am a little piece of God. Dang. Wow. Wait, I have worth because if I'm a little piece of God and he's worthy of everything and he is everything and he just is, is, then I am, I is and little is of is. How magnificent is that? So I am high on this dignity of the human person thing. It is my favorite. But I still didn't have peace inside. I still had anger and hatred towards the people who had harmed me. And therapy didn't take that away. And I thought going to confession might do that. We were at a homeschool conference a few years after I became a Catholic. And there were priests lined up in the back offering confession. I was like, you know what? I wasn't planning on going, but you know what? I feel like going now. Amazing how that works. And I sat down in front of the priest. No. Now I know how to do everything properly. And it just came out. Every pain, every wound, every bad thing they did to me, everything I was struggling with that kept attacking my, my dignity and my self-worth, 
my hatred. No, you don't understand, Father. I want to set them on fire. Like the thought of that is really pleasing to me. Seriously. Can I kill them myself with my bare hands? Can I watch them get buried in the ground? Can I spit on their grave? See, you have to understand that when we pack boxes and we put lids on and we shove them down inside of ourselves, that turns into nothing but anger and hatred. And even though I pulled those boxes out and the world taught me how to deal with them, I haven't really dealt with them. I haven't given them to God. And so I just spilled everything out and here I'm expecting, oh, dear child, oh, I know you're struggling. I looked at the priest, he looked at me, and he said, do you love them? Yeah. <laughs> okay, say what? You were just sitting here in front of me for the past 15 minutes, right? You did hear what I just said to you. That's what I was thinking. I didn't say that. Do you love them? And I looked into his eyes wanting to be upset, but I saw Jesus. The same Jesus who had gotten me into his church and had me sitting in front of that priest. I saw him in his eyes. And I knew in my heart that the answer to his question should be yes, if I'm a Christian. But it was no. I told him no, Father. I don't, thinking he'll have some pity on me. And without skipping a beat, he looked at me and said, do you want to see them in heaven? Yeah, imagine that. Just take a second and think about the deepest wound that you have and the person who afflicted you with it. And you're going, oh yes, Jesus, can they come too? No, 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 Father, I don't. I want them to burn in hell. Yeah, well, that's your problem. I think it's just great. You are a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. You are a Catholic. Yes, I'm a Catholic. You learned about the dignity of the human person. Oh, yeah. It's not just me. It's not just me who's created in the image of God. It's not just me that's a little is of the big is of the is. It's every single human person that has ever existed, that exists right now, and whoever will exist uniquely themselves. And did I encounter human people that were living in sin? Yep. And did I encounter human people that harmed me and that harmed others? Yep. Does that change that God loves them and wants to see them with him too? That's what God was telling me in that confession. If you're truly my disciple, then I need you to go and get him too. How do I do that, Father? I don't know how to do that. Tell me how to do that. You pray. What? Here I am thinking I can get like a checklist or something. Eight Hail Marys and a couple thousand rosaries and... No, you pray. Every moment that you have a bad thought, every time you want to hurt them, every time you're triggered and, and you're angry, you drop to your knees and you thank the Lord that you have an opportunity to join in his love and mercy for one of his children and pray them to him. Okay, two years. I don't like to put time limits on it because then people go, okay, if I do this, it's gonna happen in two years. No, this is between me and God, our own particular timeline on this one. But it took two years. Daily mass, prayers after receiving communion. And when I first started, it was doing this. Until two years later, I'm literally on my knees and I'm praying for their souls and asking God to forgive them. And I begin to cry. The idea, just as if it were my husband or one of my children, that something bad has already happened to them and that their souls have perished. I'm weeping, people. 
I am weeping uncontrollably over the salvation of the people who destroyed me. Only God can do that. And that's what I declared. I threw my arms like, you did it. Oh my gosh, you did it, Lord. How the heck did you do it? I don't care. It's done. I love them. That realizing my heart had been turned from stone to flesh. That's what that scripture means, people. And I got to feel it literally happen in my life by the grace of God. And he showed me the perfectness of forgiveness. And that perfectness of forgiveness is we are all wounded. Nobody gets out of this journey unscathed. Raise your hand if you're not wounded. Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. We all have boxes. Some of us have just one tiny one left. That's the hardest one to open. Some of us are filled with them because we've never allowed ourselves to pop the first top. But we are all wounded. And if we're, wo if we're wounded, then that means there's an offender. If we've been offended, if we've been hurt, and there's been somebody who has hurt us, who has offended us, who has wounded us, and what therapy in the secular world want to tell you is that to hell with them. You just focus on you. And that's what I did, believing in that. And then I became a Christian, and Jesus said, you really want to follow me? You really want the fullness, all the gifts that I have to give you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I do, Lord. Yes, yes, please, please. Go love them. The worst of them. Go love them and go get them to heaven. That's called perfect forgiveness. It can only happen with you and Jesus Christ. Nothing else. There's no way that can happen unless you and Jesus Christ are working on it together. I scoured scripture. I scoured scripture looking for a beautiful scripture passage about God forgiving me. And everything I found about forgiveness in scripture, and this is a challenge to anybody out there who wants to do this, find me a scripture passage about forgiveness that doesn't tie us being forgiven to how we forgive others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Matthew 6.14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. There's more. I haven't found one that says, don't worry, baby, Jesus forgives you. And if you find it, contact me. I'll change my talk, but I doubt you will. Because God created us to be in relation with one another. And it's not just be in relation with the people who make you feel good. And this whole desire to see your offender be in heaven has nothing to do with being physically present or having a, a, an actual personal relationship in your life with them. No. I've never seen my, my abusers, my offenders after that. And if they were to walk into the room right now, I can't tell you what my flesh would do. Because that's my flesh. And we know the flesh is weak. But I can absolutely tell you where my heart is. What God looks into and sees every day. And that's they belong in heaven with him. And if there's any way I can be a part of that, then that's my cross as a Christian.
to carry and to do. I wrote a book in 2020. I started talking in 2017, sharing my testimony. People were like, oh, yes, you gotta write a book. I'm like, I don't know how to get my laundry done in one day. Like, I can't have time to write a book. Well, hey, Holy Spirit, thanks, Lord. Um, I did end up writing a book in 2020, telling a lot of the main points of my testimony and my story, as well as this perfect forgiveness. And um, it's called Dazzled, Finding the Key to Perfect Forgiveness. And so I do have them available in the back for a love offering. We don't charge a set amount of money. You have a little something that's great, it's just to cover the costs of getting more and getting them out there to people. But Dazzled comes from the quote that's attributed to St. Augustine. In my deepest wound, think about that. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, Lord. Your glory. In my deepest wound, that's where I found your glory. And it dazzled me. St. Augustine. I have been dazzled, ladies and gentlemen. And I pray for you today that in one way or another, what I've shared will help you to open up those boxes, to allow yourself the true freedom. It is true freedom. I cannot stress that enough. The chains fall off when we fully surrender to God and we walk with him, especially in the work that needs to be done to heal our wounds and to attain perfect forgiveness. I pray that for all of you. And finally, I just want to share with you, in 1999, I started Sophisa. I felt I was called back out to the streets. And so for the past 22 years, we've been serving homeless families and their children. We do street outreach. We do hotel nights. We do emergency food and housing in Los Angeles. So there's information on that flyer about Sophisa and the events that we do. If God's calling you to get involved or to help in any way, I please encourage you to, to answer that call. The other is me, my story about my book, a way to stay in contact with me, please do. If you have somebody that you know the book could help, I'm happy to send it to them, but just to stay connected. A lot of the stuff that I shared with you today, I post more in depth about on my social media, so please connect with me, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of those, I encourage you to connect with me. One last thing, I don't usually do this one, but and some of you may not have them because I don't think I brought enough. December 21st is the longest night of the year. It's the longest night of the year. And I know Orange County does a homeless memorial for the lives, homeless lives lost on the street. Well, LA County, where I'm from, is doing a homeless interreligious memorial service for the almost 2,000 lives that were lost and had nobody to claim them last year in Los Angeles County alone. Our organization, SOFISA, is co-sponsoring that event, working with the Archdiocese on also a follow-up event, a resource there. It's really important that the average person has just a small amount, if anything, of the truth, not the myths of homelessness. And that's another thing that Sophisa tries to do is to break those myths. You're looking at a homeless person right here. So to help break the myths of the homeless experience, in doing that, we can really end up bringing those communities together. So I encourage you to join us. Come out to the cathedral. It's going to be a beautiful evening if you can. God healed all of my family relationships. Thanks be to God. 
And especially with my mom in the past couple years, it's been absolutely amazing. She is actually working out and taking care of her body and going to church now. And she's not a Catholic, but that's okay. She is now beginning the healing process, which is something I've always prayed for for my mom. And my dad is doing fine. Um, they, well, he lives in Florida still. But um, we have one granddaughter from my oldest son, Brandon. I never ever got to raise him. But when he turned 14, he came searching for me. And we connected at that time. And he's been a part of our family ever since. And I know we're short on time. I can't tell every single story in my life. I did attend a Rachel's Vineyard retreat. God personally introduced me to my daughter Esperanza. The little ladybug, some of you may have a ladybug in your bag. God gave me the ladybug as a physical representation of her. And she's always showing up everywhere to remind us that she's there and praying for us. She's a very active member in our lives as well. My daughter, my husband adopted her. She was just a baby when we met. And so he adopted her officially and has been an amazing father to her and all of our children. And she's married. She's 27 now. She's a model slash actress in L.A., and she's married and lives downtown with her husband. Um, we have a 19-year-old son, Darian. He's a pilot. He just became a certified instructor, so now he's making pilots. Um, so we're really, we're really proud of him. His goal is to get all his hours and become a commercial airline pilot. Our youngest is 17, Francis Day. Just a classic kid. He's got a 67 Mustang that he parks on Friday nights at the car shows in his little folding chair and talks with the other 60 and 70 year olds there, you know, so we have to convince him that he needs to get a job, that he can't collect social security yet. He's great. He's studying auto mechanics. He's a senior in high school. And we have one granddaughter. She's Hazel. She lives in Florida. She's a blessing to us. She comes out during the summers and spends time with us. Thanks be to God, our relationships are all still in the process of healing, but doing very, very well. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.